First Peter chapter five is where we will focus in this morning. First uh, Peter five, you might want to hold your finger there and have another finger or ribbon or whatever you might happen to have set in the book of Daniel chapter one, because we're going to be in both this morning. First Peter five, six through seven is our focal point, however. Why don't you stand with me as we read the word of God together? This is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. It is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Pray with me. Father, I pray that we live the words of this verse, that we humble ourselves before you. As we hear your word, help us to be humble to listen, humble to take in your word, humble to let it penetrate our hearts and our minds that we may know and do what it says. Father, shape us in this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I said we're going we're gonna to be in Daniel. That's actually kind of where we're going to start because I find in the book of Daniel this fascinating story of this man named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar took over the reigns of Babylon around 607, 608, maybe even 609. It's in 609 that he is conquering Israel and he is taking the captives originally back in Jerusalem. Now, now he doesn't destroy the city in 609. Uh, it's around that time that he's called back to Babylon because his father, Nabopolassar, is uh, on his deathbed. Eventually, his father dies. He becomes king somewhere in that area. But in the process of doing this, he, he does take enough control of Jerusalem to set up a vassal king and take the king as well as a bunch of youth with him as hostages to Babylon. And that's where the book of Daniel picks up. So you have this exalted king who is, who is uh, going to be the, one of the, if not the most influential king in the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar would reign for more than 40 years. His empire would be vast. He would be strong. He would be a capable leader, great military leader, best known for his construction, building temples all over the place to the gods of Babylon. Whether, whether it be certain specific gods or, or whether it be his, his favorite god, which seems to be Marduk, of all of the gods of Babylon, or there were some others that he built temples to. He was best known for building cities. He was best known for really revitalizing things. It's under Nebuchadnezzar that the hanging gardens of Babylon, when the ancient wonders of the world are built, because one of his wives misses all the mountains back home. And so he says, well, we'll just plant some gardens on the sides of these man-made hills so that it'll give you that mountain feeling. I tell you, don't you wish you had that kind of money? Some, some of you ladies are like, I wish my husband had that kind of, of skill. And we could really get this place looking nice, you know? You know, have some, have some hanging gardens around the house or whatever. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest kings of the ancient world, and yet when we meet him in Scripture, it's funny how the Scripture plays out the story. He's bringing these captives back from Babylon, but even in that, look at Daniel 1, verse 2, not in the PowerPoint, but look in Daniel 1, verse 2. Listen to what he says. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vassals of the house of God. 
And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. In other words, what happens is Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's won a great battle and he's getting all the spoils of war. But in reality, God has handed them over to him. It's this undercurrent that would keep resurfacing and eventually become the prominent theme of Nebuchadnezzar's not life. In chapter 1, we have a boy named Daniel and three of his friends who refuse to defile themselves with the king's food. The king sets out a diet. He says, the food that's on my table, I want fed to these boys. I want them educated in this, 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 and this. I want them to go through this program. And by the end of it, I'm going to judge how good they are. Some of them are going to be positions of leadership. Some of them aren't. If you don't do well, <laughs> your, your head's on the chopping block if you're in charge of this program. right? So, so he does this thinking he's the one in charge. But in reality, these four Hebrew boys say, you know what, we're going to eat the food God tells us and not the food the king gives us. They try a little experiment. Give us 10 days. They finally get someone to agree to it. 10 days. And after 10 days, they're healthier and stronger than those around them. And after this three-year program, they come before Nebuchadnezzar and he is so impressed that he gives these guys prominent positions. The, it's an undercurrent. It's barely there. You can barely notice it. But the undercurrent's there. Then in chapter 2, the advisors are coming to Nebuchadnezzar because he's had this troubling dream and he wants the interpretation, but he says, you know, I need to know you're really bringing the goods. I don't want to just take your word that you're telling me the truth. I want you to prove to me you're telling me the truth by telling me what I dreamed. Now, hands up. How many people want that assignment? To identify the dream and what it means. I mean, they had books. They had all kinds of, of great works that they could consult on the meaning of visions and dreams and things like that. I mean, they were, some of them were experts in the field. They were, they were PhDs in dreamology. And yet, none of them could do it because they didn't even know what the dream was. But here comes this Hebrew boy that says, I can't tell you what the dream means. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The undercurrent's there. A little slightly more visible, but may not be quite as clear. So by Daniel chapter 3, it needs to become a little more overt. So, Nebuchadnezzar builds this giant image made of gold, huge image, brings all the leaders in the, in the surrounding area to come worship at the feet of this image, to worship the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up says that multiple times in the text, stressing that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who built this. I mean, he is the builder after all, right? He's, he's the one who built the hanging gardens and he's the one who built all of the fantastic things around Babylon and in some of the other major cities of the empire. So you know he's going to get credit for building this 90-foot tall image made of, of probably wood overlaid with gold. And yet... In the end, it's these three Hebrew boys saying, we're not going to bow, and we don't even have to answer you about this. We don't, we don't even have to answer to you, king, because we worship one God. Bound them up, threw them in a furnace, so hot it burned the guys who threw them in. And yet they're walking around unscathed, unsinged, not even smelling like fire. And by the end of it, Nebuchadnezzar is praising the God of heaven instead of his own gods. It's not an undercurrent anymore. It's starting to reveal itself. It's, it's starting to become 
that, that wave on top of the surface, but it's about to become a tsunami because in chapter four, he has this dream of this giant tree that spans over all the earth. High of it reaches to heaven. There's beautiful fruit. It's so luscious, so delicious that men from all over the world are coming to eat of the fruit. Beasts from all over are coming to find shade in its branches or find, find a place for a nest if you're a bird. I mean, this tree is this life-giving tree. It's beautiful. And then an angel comes down from heaven and says, chop it down. Get rid of it. Lop off the branches. Tear off the leaves. Cut it down to a stump. Then they put a ring around the stump because if you know anything about cutting down trees, you know stuff will grow on those stumps. So they put this band around it so nothing else could grow. There was no hope for the stump. What does this mean? And he goes back to the advisors. They can't tell him. This time he's not interested in knowing if they know anything or not. He just wants to know what the dream He's so worried about the dream, he just wants to know what it means. They can't tell him. So in comes Daniel. Daniel gives him the vision and says, this is you, king. You're the tree. By the end of the chapter, it's happened. He's been cut off. He's wandering around like a beast for a long period of time. Daniel doesn't tell us exactly how long. He only says seven periods of time. So we don't know if that's seven weeks, seven months, seven years. We don't know. All we know is that there's there's a long period of time where Nebuchadnezzar is walking on all fours, acting like an animal. And then he looks up and his reason returns to him. And listen to what he says in Daniel 4.37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is after all of it's done, the kingdom has been restored to him, he's back in his right mind. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, that's, that's the tsunami that has been the undercurrent for so long in this story. Now it all hits. And boy, does it cause destruction in its wake. Nebuchadnezzar's pride is obliterated by this wave of truth that God humbles the proud. In fact, this is the last thing Nebuchadnezzar says in your Bibles. After this, it goes to the next king, the next leader of Babylon. That's the last thing he says. You know why? Because that's what his life teaches us. God humbles the proud. Think about that. Think about the import of this lesson to us. Because how often are we proud? I know y'all aren't proud very much. I am. Sometimes I get proud and I don't even deserve to be proud. Y'all ever do that? You do something that's little and you think it's a great accomplishment? Boy, I, I almost get proud on days that I wake up and I feel like I actually slept the whole night. Man, that makes me proud. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I own the place. How silly we are sometimes. We don't deserve to be proud most of the time, but we are anyway. But even when we do, even when we accomplish great things, even when we do phenomenal feats, sometimes we can be proud in ourselves thinking that we deserve it and we deserve praise and we deserve adulation and we deserve congratulations and we deserve all these great things. When in reality, we're just setting ourselves up. What's the verse? Pride goes before the fall, right? 
And that's not to say that there shouldn't be some level of pride when we do accomplish something. Nicole graduating, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. And there should be some level of pride that, hey, I did this. I set out and I did it. And, and I didn't kill my parents and they didn't kill me in the process. I mean, that's a big deal. But that can easily become way too much pride. And we, we can get so big-headed and we can think so highly of ourselves that we forget that God is able to pride him who is, who, to humble him who is proud. And that, that's, a, that's the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar's life. Let's go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter has been setting this up. He's been actually dealing with two different themes. And, and you've heard me kind of go back and forth between the two. Because in the text, he's kind of gone back and forth. He's talked about submission. He's talked about the importance to us to submit, uh, 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 specifically to submit with humility. But he's also had this idea of suffering. How we suffer faithfully and submit humbly. It's this double nature. And the reason he's done that is because Jesus has set the example in both. Jesus suffered faithfully while submitting himself humbly. And because Jesus has set the example, Peter is just saying, hey, follow Jesus. Do what he has been doing. So in chapter 5, he turns to the elders and he says, shepherd the flock. What he's telling them is, you need to be humble. Humble yourself before those who are following you. Shepherd them, care for them, lead them right. That's the way Jesus did. And when he turns to the followers and he says, submit to those who are elders, what he's telling them is, humble yourself. Brings it all together in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Watch this. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's funny that we should end Sunday morning on that. Go to chapter 4 of Daniel on Wednesday night. And then we start today and our focus verse is in verse 6 where the first thing he says is humble yourselves. Do you think God might be trying to tell us something? you think God might be trying to tell me something? <laughs> I planned this out months ago and I didn't plan for, this, for it to happen this way. In fact, I planned it a little differently and some things kind of got moved around because certain verses I needed to focus more on and other things I kind of had to combine together. So this wasn't even necessarily planned. It's just the way God works, pulling it all together. And, and he's been screaming at me for the last few weeks, humble yourself, humble yourself. Because it's easy to be proud. It's easy to be on top and think you are the boss. You are, you are the one who's most important and to get that kind of a big head. But I'm going to warn you, it's not just easy for the top man. It's easy for the bottom man too. Well, look at what all I deserve. Look at everything that I do. Look at, look at what all I'm putting into this. I should get more. I should, be, I, should be, I should have a higher pay. I should have more respect. I should get uh, um, the, the love and affection of other people. But that general principle still holds. God opposes the proud because they're against him. But he gives grace to the humble. This, this morning in verses 6 and 7, I want us to see three attributes, three things that humility does that are so necessary for this faithful um, suffering and yet humble submission. How we follow Jesus in these ways. Humility does three things. And now these aren't the only things humility does. These are just three that are prominent in the text before us. First, 
Humility reveals God's dominion over us. Humility reveals God's dominion over us. It never fails when I think I am all that in a bag of chips is the same moment that I forget that God reigns. You ever been there? The moment that I think that it's all about me is the moment I forget that God is the one who's really in charge. And it's like that. It, 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 it doesn't, it's not something that happens over time. It's not that I start thinking I'm great and then God slowly recedes to the background. No, 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 no. It's as soon as I get God off the throne, I'm sitting in it. In fact, I'm pushing him out. Have you ever seen kids playing a game of, of um, what's the game called, musical chairs? Yeah, where this, the, they got chairs in a circle, but there's one less chair than kid. And so they're going around while the music's going. And when it stops, like kids are like shoving each other out of the way to sit in the chair, right? That's how I do to God. I push him off of the throne while I'm trying to get in it. And it's that moment that I forget he's in charge. That's the moment that I get proud. But humility reveals God's dominion. You see, because when I'm humble, I recognize I'm not the one in charge. That's why he starts verse 6 like this. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Ten times in the Old Testament, the phrase the mighty hand refers to God's redemption of the Israelites out of Egypt. Ten times. Eight of them, by the way, are in the book of Deuteronomy. Once in Exodus. One time, though, uh, not, one, not one of those ten, but one time God previews it by telling Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go. But Pharaoh's not going to let you go until uh, he's persuaded by my mighty hand. You see, sometimes it takes a mighty hand of God to persuade us that we're not the ones in charge. But we have an interesting option here as Christians. Pharaoh didn't have the option. Pharaoh didn't have the option because he refused it. Pharaoh didn't have the option because he hardened his heart toward God. But we have an option. Those of us who have hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. We have an option. Those of us who have been circumcised in heart, as, as Paul says. We have the option to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. We have the option to recognize his dominion over us. And us being humble enough to say, God, you are the one in charge. Puts us directly under his dominion. It puts us under his mighty hand instead of in the way of his mighty hand. You see, it's interesting. Um, James, when you're in Taekwondo and you're doing jab cross and they go to attack, what do you do? You duck, right? You jab cross duck, right? Because you're going to get hit if you don't duck, right? What's interesting is when it's kind of a picture of what we're doing when we're humbling ourselves. What we're doing is we're getting, we're putting ourselves in a position not to be subject to the wrath of God, but instead of, of being in the way of that wrath of God, we're kind of putting ourselves under his protection, aren't we? Sometimes the Bible talks about God having his wings. He who, he who dwells um, under the shelter of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Talks about him having his wings like a mother bird covering us with his pinions. The picture is that when we put ourselves under God, we are in a place of protection, not of wrath. Now, now that doesn't mean that we avoid consequences. 
when we do wrong. But it does mean that when we're humble, we're putting ourselves in a place to be protected by God rather than opposing God. Humility does that. It puts us in that position of protection. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Get under his hand rather than in front of it. Because I promise you, when God is punching, you don't want to receive the punch. When God has his wrath, you don't want to be receiving that wrath. Instead, you have the opportunity to come under his judgment before its wrath. And that's really what we do when we accept Christ, isn't it? We're humbling ourselves before God and we're allowing him to judge the sins that we have committed, putting faith in Christ that he will redeem us from our sins. Humility reveals God's dominion. It doesn't just, humility doesn't just, it doesn't just avoid God's dominion. No, it puts us straight underneath it because that's the place that we need to be. Second thing, humility accomplishes God's purpose in us. Humility accomplishes God's purpose in us. It's not just that we avoid the wrath of God by being humble. Not just that we recognize that God is in control, but we secede that control to him. We give that control to him and allow him to do what he wants to do. We find this in the second part of verse 6. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Now, there are some that will preach that the only reason you humble yourself, they might not quite say it this way, but that's basically what they're saying. The only reason you humble yourself is because God is going to exalt you. So you just humble yourself now so God can exalt you later. You do good things now, you humble yourself now, and later God's going to give you all kinds of fruit and increase of that. There's some truth to that. But it's not the reason we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves because God's in control. We humble ourselves because we need to be humble. We humble ourselves because that's what puts us in the position to be uh, partakers of the grace of God. But there is some truth to the fact that if you're humble now, he will exalt you later. There is some truth to that. Why? Because that's what God wants to do. It's not because you're so humble and you're so great that I have to reward you now. It's not that you've earned my favor. No, no, no. We have God's favor long before we earn it. You don't think God would just send his son to die for sinners just because he knew that one day you could earn his favor. No, no, no. He's already given us favor. No, but there is coming a time. There is coming a time when God wants to exalt us. Now, he's got to do some work in us first. And when we humble ourselves, we're open to that work, aren't we? Think about it. Who's the student who learns? The one that says, I know everything, or the one that says, I need to learn? Who would you rather have if you were training a new hire? The person that walks in and says, well, at my old job, we always... You don't want that guy. Where I, where I came from, this was all... Don't give me that. This is the way we do it, Right? Or do you want the person that comes in and says, yeah, I'd love to learn. Yeah, show me. Okay, so, so I need to do it this way here, right? Yeah, that's the guy I want to train. I don't even care if he says, no, why do we do it this way? I don't care about that. I'm great with that. Yeah, let me tell you why we do it this way. But I want the guy who's willing to learn. I don't want the guy that knows everything. And I know, I know what you're thinking. You are the guy who knows everything. Yes, I understand that. God's working on me. He's improving me. 
<coughs> Slow process sometimes. But he is working on me. What I'm finding, though, is that when I'm humble, God can actually do what he wants to do in me. It opens me up. It frees me to be able to follow him. When, I, when I'm humble, man, there's a, there's a lot of work he needs to do. But boy, boy, it's great when he does it. It's like the kid who doesn't want to take a bath, doesn't want to take a bath. Finally, they get a bath and they actually feel better. Of course, they're running back outside to go get dirty again. But it's amazing how when we humble ourselves, God can work so much easier. He is looking to do a work in you. And he wants to. He's willed it that way. He, he wants to do the work in you. Are, do you want him to do the work? Or do you just want to be the way you are because you're so proud? He'll do it in his time. He'll do it in his way. I think I've told the story before about going to the doctor. The whole family had strep. Everybody had strep. Carrie had strep. All the kids had strep. I started getting the illness. I started getting all the symptoms. I knew what it was. I walked into the doctor's office. They said, what's the problem today? I said, I have strep. Doc took the test. Smart enough to say, okay, this guy has strep. And I told him, my whole family has strep. I've got the same symptoms. I know I've got strep. Doc said, well, let's, let's verify by the test. He checks the test. Guess what? It was positive I had strep. I know that's probably surprising you. You're probably thinking, oh, yeah, this guy didn't have strep at all, did he? <laughs> no, I did. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't tell the doc to write a prescription for this particular medicine to be given this many times a day at this dosage for this many days. I didn't tell him that. Why not? Because even though I could diagnose my problem, I did not have the proper prescription to solve my problem. So I let the expert handle that. God has the proper prescription for our problems. And sometimes we get so proud that we prescribe to him what he ought to do. Even if we got the problems right, even if we understand the problem, we think that we are better prescribers than the good physician. Talk about pride. You know, God wants to do something in us. He'll do it his way. He'll do it his time. He'll do it for his glory. If you're humble, he'll do it in you. Last thing I want to show you about humility. Humility brings God's liberation to us. It reveals his dominion over us. It accomplishes his purpose in us. Humility also brings God's liberation to us. Verse 7 is one of those treasures of Scripture. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we humble ourselves in recognition of God's dominion, submitting to God's purpose and work in us, it allows us to trust him. And when we trust him, talk about freedom. Freedom from anxieties, freedom from fears, freedom from worries, freedom from doubts. We cast all of those things at the feet of our Savior along with our crowns because we don't want any of it, do we? No, not, not, not when we're humble before him. We don't have to be concerned with what we will eat or drink or what clothes we will wear, because we know he's the one who clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the sparrows, and we're worth more than flowers and birds. We see firsthand how our good shepherd makes us to lie down in green pastures, how he leads us beside still waters, how he restores our souls, 
how he leads us in paths of righteousness all for his name's sake. We live in the promise that he will never leave nor forsake us. We know his peace that passes all understanding as he calms the raging seas of our souls, quiets our stormy emotions, heals our brokenness. God loves us. And when we're humble, we get to know that love personally, intimately, completely. As we submit to the almighty God, we find him not only as almighty, but also all-caring. We learn that we can cast our anxieties upon the one with whom we're yoked because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Humility makes all of that possible. Without us humbling ourselves before God, we cannot experience the freedom of his goodness. We don't know what it means to cast our anxieties upon him who we don't trust enough to give them over to. And we don't trust him until we've given him everything. Until we're willing to submit to him and do what he asks of us. Until we're willing to follow him faithfully to the ends of the earth. Until we're willing to obey even the simplest of his commands. We do not know the pleasure of knowing and loving God until we first humble ourselves and trust to him. Humility isn't just about being low. Humility is about being in proper position before God. When we are, we can live the kind of life that he's designed us to live. And we can experience firsthand just how good he is. Until then, it's words on a page, songs in a hymnal, things mama used to say that we never quite got. Father, I pray that you would humble us. Father, I pray that we would bow before you in recognition of your dominion, knowing that you are the one in charge and that we would submit to you doing your work in us, accomplishing your purpose, doing what you want to do in us. Father, we may be free to love and serve you because whoever the Son makes free is free indeed. Father, Humble us this morning. Help us to be who you want us to be. Thank you for your wonderful work of grace in us, God, because it takes your grace to be humble. Keep working in us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.